together to see what the Lord has to say to us, His people. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll pick up um, kind of in the passage that we began last week. Last week we looked at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Peter 3, and we're going to pick up that entire passage now, looking at verses 1 through 7, and the title of the message today is Carnality and Catastrophic Judgment. That's really what the text shows us. We see the courage of the saints, the fleshliness of the world, and this catastrophic judgment of God pictured by Noah's flood and then brought to its fruition, to its completion in Christ at the end of days. Um, Again, last time we zoned in on verses 1 and 2 and saw the call that the church must be courageous. In these days in which we live, we must stand firm. We must understand the carnality, the, the sinfulness of the world, and we must be prepared to stand firm because their judgment is coming. Christ will reign, Christ does reign, and the judgment of the world is coming, and we must stand firm and obey our Master. We must remember the Lord's instruction, we must submit to His commands. And we must serve the reigning Christ. That's part of the good news as we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, is that we know the end of the story. Despite the fact that mockers will come in these last days, we know that Christ reigns. We serve the risen and reigning Savior. So let's go to our text. I'll ask you if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We'll read 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7, this is holy, inerrant, inspired scripture, the very word of God. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, Then the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from before the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This is the reading of God's word. May he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you bow with me now and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we praise your great and mighty name. You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. All of your creation magnifies your great power. Lord, it's astounding and astonishing that you have created all that exists simply by the the word of power that comes forth from you. 
we consider the heavens, when we consider all the works of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you should care for him? Lord, in a way, we are nothing. We are, we're smaller than the smallest ant, but then on the other hand, your word tells us that we're created in your image, that we, the saints, are a people who are set apart to be a people for your own possession, for your own glory. Lord, help us to live in light of both of those realities with humble and reverent hearts. Lord, help us to understand the greatness of your power. Help us to understand also the greatness of your love and mercy and compassion. Lord, as we desire to come now and hear from your word, pray that your Holy Spirit would move in power. Lord, for as men, we are weak, feeble, and frail. Lord, we have not the strength or the ability to accomplish this great task before us to, to hear from, to understand, and to apply your word, but your Holy Spirit is in us, your Holy Spirit is among us, and your Holy Spirit delights to work in us, to, to work your word into our hearts and our lives, to write your word upon our hearts, and so we ask, God, that that would be what you do in this time, that you would write your word upon our hearts. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Lord, would you help us to understand our position as those who must stand firm in dark and evil days? Would you help us to see and understand that we do that by looking to the reigning Savior? Lord, I ask for your help in this time. I ask that you would teach us you would convict us, that you would draw us to repentance, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are humble and ready and eager to receive and apply the truth. Lord, above all, above all of this, we pray and we desire that you would be glorified among us today. That is the great aim of your people, to bring honor and glory to your name. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you that our Savior bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we could die to sin and be made alive in his righteousness. Thank you that we stand before you now, clothed in that righteousness, washed in that precious blood. Pray that we would hear the voice of our chief shepherd. Pray that we would follow him. Pray that we would be washed and cleansed and purified through the preaching and teaching of your word. We ask all this for your glory and in Christ's name. Amen. 
So to reset the, the context before us just briefly, we, we're coming off of chapter 2 of 2 Peter, where, where Peter gave just a blazing chastisement of false teachers. He, he talked about how wicked they are and what their end will be. And coming into chapter 3, we kind of have a slightly different take on these heretics of the day. He goes from false teachers to these lust-filled, flesh-filled, sinful mockers, those who are really blasphemers of the Lord. Peter clearly defines these categories for us and shows us that these are those that we must stand against in the last days. We know that the, the heretics, the, the false teachers, the mockers, they all have the same end. They will all be condemned. They all face eternity in hell, and we will be victorious over them. And yet knowing that, the Lord takes time in His holy word to continue to press and encourage His people to stand firm. Because the Lord knows that in these dark days, we need to be encouraged. We need to be exhorted. We need to be pressed onward. We need to be called to remain steadfast in our submission to the truth. The central proposition of this text, I believe, is really clear. Peter says we must soberly look toward the return of Christ. In doing that, we remember God's promises and His instruction as we strive to resist the attack of these lust-filled, mocking heretics. If we will resist those who stand against Christ's church, we do it in one way, and that's by looking to our Savior. For He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our King, and He is our Lord. He is our keeper and our sustainer. He is our chief example. He is the good shepherd, and He will return to reign. That in and of itself should put wind in your sails. It should put strength in your stride to remember your Savior is coming back. And He does so in victory. And He does so to tread out the winepress of God's wrath. Christ is the source of creation. And He is the executor of judgment. He's the one by whom the Lord created the earth, and He is the one who comes to bring about God's vengeance and wrath against sin. So looking to Christ, we should be strengthened by His Spirit to stand firm and to resist in these dark days. So we looked last time kind of at a sketch as to why and how the church must be courageous in verses 1 and 2 in a I want to start back in those verses again this morning and kind of look at them real specific to the context, real specific to what Peter then outlines in verses 3 through 7. So let's begin by looking at the courage of God's people. Verses 1 and 2, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So in 1 Peter, which we studied last year, I believe, 
Peter exhorted the people to stand firm in persecution. The persecuted church had but really one exhortation from this apostle, and that was to stand firm, to be exhorted, to remain. Now, in his second epistle, Peter has the similar message to stand firm, but now we stand firm against falsehood, against false teachers, and against mockers, against those who make a mockery of the Lord and his word. Notice where Peter begins that instruction. He says, this is the second letter in which I'm writing you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind. Where does Peter begin? He begins in the mind. The mind in the Greek is is the seat of the faculties and understanding and desire. So what we draw out of that is this is not some cold doctrinal understanding. This is not just mere orthodoxy where Peter says, here's all these glorious facts and then you just go and live and they don't affect you. No, he says, know this with your minds. Your mind affects your heart. Your heart affects the way that you live. Your heart affects your affections. Peter says, this is where we begin, in the mind. He says, I'm stirring up your mind so that you would remember the word spoken beforehand by the prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. So let's talk about verse 2 for a moment. The, the writing of the Old Testament prophets, and really, again, where Peter is zoning in as we get to verses 3 through 7 is the return of Christ. The judgment of Christ. So Peter's saying, remember what the prophets wrote about the coming judgment of Christ. Think back to Malachi. We studied Malachi recently. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said there through the prophet, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and you will skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. The day is coming. It's burning like a blazing furnace where the Lord will burn up all the works of the evil, and then when he burns up their works, the next thing that's left is he will burn them. They will suffer wrath for all eternity. That is the Lord's punishment for the unrighteous. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3 says, For the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Prophet Joel, Joel 1.15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. We can see this throughout the Old Testament. You can see it specifically, extensively in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Zephaniah and Micah and others. This coming day of the Lord is a day of wrath and vengeance. Peter's call to the church. Think about, draw that back into what Peter's doing. Peter's telling the church, be steadied. Stand firm. 
understand that these truths long ago proclaimed will come to fruition. The vengeance of the Lord should be a hopeful thing to those who are in Christ. The promise of Christ's return, though, is a hopeful thing only when we live in obedience, only when we are alive in Christ. For if you are in disobedience, you, you fear the day when Christ will, will come and show and declare all of your works. If you are apart from Christ, surely you live in great fear, knowing that one day He will judge you. That judgment will be unavoidable. So we must walk in obedience, then we look to the return of Christ, and it brings hope, and it brings joy. And it causes us to stand firm. Peter didn't only talk about the Old Testament prophets. He said to also remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. So basically, he points back to the Old Testament, and then he also draws in the New Testament. MacArthur said that this was a, a pointer to the New Testament being all about Christ. Paul, in um, 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, he said, keep the commandment, just, just broadly. That's a, a general term. Keep the commandment uh, without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So on one hand, we can kind of see that, that Peter is just talking about the New Testament, but then remember the context. He's saying, remember the command, the, the sayings, the teachings of Christ as it pertains to his return. So it's not just the Old Testament that told us that Christ is coming back. The New Testament also tells us of Christ and his return and his reign and his wrath. In Mark chapter 13, Christ himself said that heaven and earth will pass away and I will come again suddenly. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ will return suddenly. In John 14 he told his disciples kind of on the, on the flip side of that. He said, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to depart. But if I depart, it's because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will return for you. And then I will bring you with me to where I am. So, so you have these, these dual ideas of the return of Christ. On, on one hand, it's a day of wrath. A day when the heavens and the earth are burned up with fire and sinners with it. It's also a day of peace. It's a day of hope. The point of all this is that we must remember these things. Peter says, I'm writing to stir your minds up. I'm writing to shake you awake in remembering that Christ is coming again. For if our Savior was not returning, surely you could understand how the church would tremble. Because evil is proceeding from bad to worse worse to worse but the day comes when Christ returns he calls his bride to himself and we look to and we long for that day as we look and look to and long for that day the mocking of the world should, should make us be proclaimers of this truth we ought to be proclaiming to them God's word. We don't go to the world with some man-made argument. We don't go with philosophical reasonings, but we go with the authoritative word of God. 
And the world will mock it. The world will hate it. The world will hate you when you preach and proclaim that truth. But Christ promises that though heaven and earth will pass away, my words, Christ said, will not pass away. So as we remember the, the promise that Christ returns, we go out and proclaim. We live hopefully because he comes again and we proclaim his salvation and his judgment because he's coming again. So the courage of God's people, then moving to verses 3 and 4, I want to consider the carnality of the world, the sinfulness, the wickedness of the world. Peter writes there in verse 3, Know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So there's a description of the world. They are mockers. Peter tells about their practice that they are filled with lust as they mock and scorn. And he even tells us what they say, how they do this mocking, and it's that they mock and they hate and they profane and reject God's revealed truth. But before looking at that, just look at that first phrase in verse 3. Peter says, know this first of all. This is primary. This is utmost. This is of greatest importance. What is of greatest importance? That We know that mockers will come. Do you understand that, that the Lord through Peter is making a big deal about what's going to happen to the church? about how the world will hate us. He says, know this first of all, because if you're caught unaware by this, you're liable to fall. You're liable to, to become afraid and to maybe leave the faith or to walk away from the faith or be afraid to stand firm in persecution. So Peter says, know this. Give diligent attention to these things. Parents, you have children in your home, Peter says, make this a priority. Make it a priority to teach your children the Lord's word. Make it a priority to let them know and understand what goes on in the world as it pertains to those who are in the faith. From a young age, prepare them to stand firm when the world hates and mocks and rejects. Because there's no magical age at which a, a child passes into adulthood and then suddenly they're ready to stand firm. From the time that they can communicate, from the time that they have ears to listen, teach them these truths of God's word. Know this, Peter says, first of all. So look at this description. Peter says that they are mockers. In the last days, mockers will come with their Mocking, and that's an interesting word, an interesting idea, mockers. Um, it's used in a derogatory sense of the trifling, mocking, deluding childlessness, child, childishness, if I can get that word right. Speaks of a child playing these, these just childish games, and there's a vivid picture when we go to the Septuagint and bring the, the Greek version of the Old Testament in, in Isaiah chapter 3. The Lord is talking about removing the leaders from Judah and Jerusalem. And he says, I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. 
That's the same idea of, of these mockers. It's those who are immature, the, those who are just childish. They're caught up in, in all these things of this world. And it just kind of as a side note, do we understand that the Lord's judgment on a nation, the Lord's judgment on a people is often to give them over to some ungodly form of leadership? In our day, I think there's two primary things that that can be. One, one it's women in leadership, women in a quote-unquote pastorate. That is the Lord's judgment on a church. Or another idea is these childish people, those who are immature, those who have not moved on and moved forward in the faith, or those who are not even in the faith. That is God's judgment. And he says that's what these mockers are like. They're childish. They are impulsive. They're crude and scornful in their mocking. They're immature and unreasoning in their thoughts. They're one who proudly, arrogantly derides and scoffs at another person or, or the words especially and the beliefs of another person. Peter says mockers will come with their mocking. And then he tells about their practice. They come with their mocking, Peter says in verse 3, because they're following after their own lust. They're following after their flesh. They have no desire for godliness. Do you see the picture here? You're, you're not mocked because of people who want to walk alongside of you in godliness, but it's because they reject the absolute truths of Scripture. They, they want to live in their darkness. They don't want the light of Christ and the truth of God's commands to identify their sinfulness. They want to chase after their desires for pleasure in this moment, in this instant. The mocking of the world is often aimed most clearly at those who limit or control themselves. If you set a rule based on biblical convictions in your life, a lot of times that's exactly where worldly people will attack. You think about in the workplace, maybe you're, you, you work in a, in a crude workplace where there's a lot of people that use foul language, and there are these cases, you've probably all experienced it, where you, you show and you ask somebody, hey, can you maybe tone down the language and the world and its hatred and its rejection of moral standards, there are those people who will just to, just to be hateful, just to, to be mean, they will do exactly what you've asked them not to. That's what is pictured here. It's these people who are just so blatantly following after the lust of their flesh that when you set a standard, they will reject it. They reject absolute truth because absolute truth will eventually lead to an end of their sinfulness. It will eventually identify something that they are doing as wrong. So they say there's no absolute truth. It's like their defense mechanism. First Peter 4, verse 4, Peter says, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. You stand firm upon the truth, and the world hates it. Hates it ultimately because they feel guilty, because your stand for what is right makes their conscience understand all the more that they are in sin. 
Darkness hates light. So Peter says, we've got these mockers that will come with their mocking, following after their lust. And then he tells us how they do that. They do it by twisting and mocking God's word. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's really, really extraordinary to consider what's going on here. You have these people who are on a collision course, a crash course to God's judgment, and they stand up and they shake their fist at the Lord. They thumb their noses at him. They mock and scorn and really even blaspheme his name. It's ignorance and pride to the highest degree. It'd be like a man convicted of murder who is strapped to the electric chair, ready to have his life taken. And as he's sitting there, he's laughing and joking, talking about the next crime he's going to commit. That's effectively what's going on here. These people are under God's wrath, and they just scornfully laugh and joke and talk about, oh, he's not coming back. Everything is exactly as it was at the beginning. Do we remember what it was at the beginning? When God created the heavens and the earth, he said it was good. There was no sin. Adam and Eve had not yet sinned at the beginning. Sin had not yet entered the world, and then sin came into the world, so it's already not like it was at the beginning of creation. Yet these pride-filled, ignorant mockers will stand up and shake their fists at the Lord. Quite frankly, we should take offense to that. We take offense to those who stand and reject and blaspheme the Lord. It's not a personal offense because we understand if not for the Lord's grace, we would be in the exact same situation doing the exact same thing. So it's not a personal offense, but it's a godly zeal for the glory and honor of the Lord's name. Does it get your dander up when you see people mocking the Lord and blaspheming his name? It should because your highest desire should be for the glory of God. How do we show this zeal for God's glory, but also do it with humility? Okay, so it's, it's pride that, mocks, that, that marks these mockers. So how do we show zeal for God's glory, but doing it in humility? So we're not like those that we're standing against. I think we passionately proclaim Christ, but we do it with patience and love. If you want to stand up to those who are against Christ, you really have but one response. And that is that you stand up and you proclaim Christ with zeal and with fervor and with boldness, but you do it with patience and you do it with love. And you do it with the ultimate desire, the ultimate goal, that that blasphemer of Christ, just like you when you were formerly a blasphemer of Christ, is then made new and made alive in the Savior. Our response must be like Peter's exhortation shows. We must know this first of all. This must be understood as something of primary and greatest importance. We don't merely live in light of this. We don't merely acknowledge this. 
but our lives are transformed. Our lives are changed because we understand what we're up against. So, Saints, prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves to stand firm. We have the courage of God's people, the carnality of the world, and then in verses 5 and 6, we have the catastrophe of God's judgment. Peter uses the picture here of the flood. Verse 5, he says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. It's a fascinating use of the creation account and the historical account of the flood to show a picture of the coming judgment of God. Peter begins by pointing out the ignorant foolishness of these people. He says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. What commentators kind of zone in on here is that Peter is talking about willful, hard-hearted ignorance. They're just so seared in their conscience. They're so hard in their sin that they willfully act in, in such a way to, as to say that none of God's word is true. It's not that we don't have the facts to prove it. It's that the hardness of their hearts will not allow them to see it. They're like those described in John 3.19 who loved darkness rather than light. This willful ignorance is an ignorance of God's creative power and his sovereign authority. Yeah, that's what we always kind of come back to when we talk about how we deal with the world. Ultimately, we have to come back to God's sovereignty and God's power. This is God's world. He makes the rules. He defines the standards. He himself is the standard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 continues, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Peter says, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water. Genesis 1 continues, verses 6 and 7. God says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. It's by the spoken word of God that all things came into existence by God's authority through God's power all things are held together by the word of his power it's God who is the sovereign it's God who is the ruler this creation of God is an indisputable fact one from the truth of scripture by the authority of the Bible you cannot dispute the fact of God creating the heavens and the earth. You also can't dispute it. You, you can in the hardness of heart and darkness of mind. But really, science also supports that. And we're not going to take time, obviously, today to go into all of that. But Scripture and science both support the idea of intelligent design. They support the idea of God creating the heavens and the earth. What does man do? Man suppresses the truth 
and unrighteousness. That is the response of, of human beings. That is the response of human nature. To fight against this worldly mindset, the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, friends, we must live according to the authority of God's word. And that really starts again in the home. That all of life is in submission to the truth and authority and instruction of Scripture. So these people, they deny the account of God creating the heavens and the earth, and they even deny the account of Noah's flood, the flood in Noah's day. They just outright deny anything that ultimately doesn't fit their narrative, that doesn't support their following after fleshly and sinful lifestyles. The Lord very clearly destroyed the world by flooding it with water. Not all of creation, but all of life was destroyed, sans eight people who were on the ark, by the flood. That was the Lord's destructive power against this creation. It's the darkness of man's heart and mind that refutes even that fact. Even maybe an easier to see scientifically fact like the flood than creation, even that is denied because of the darkness of the heart and the mind of man. You just always want to argue against it. The flesh just always wants to push back on anything that is not comfortable, anything that encroaches on how you want to live. We must guard against that. Culture today gives this impression and this idea that everything is up for discussion or dispute or debate, but we stand firm and say that there is absolute truth, and it's contained in the 66 books of the Bible. There absolutely is truth. There absolutely is right and wrong. Your truth is not your truth. My truth is not my truth. God's truth is the truth, and we stand firm on that in the face of a carnal, mocking world. I think we have to understand that the Lord does not allow sin to remain unchecked. You think about the account of the flood, such a picture of the fact that the Lord will not stand idly by as man runs rampantly into sin. Thinking about the flood, I want you to understand and think about that this flood was just a gentle picture. It's a mild picture of the Lord's eternal wrath against sin. mockers of Peter's day, they acted as ignorant fools. Catastrophic judgment of God is looming, and it's coming, and it will be unleashed, and it's irreversible. When someone dies and stands before Christ in judgment, they're either in Christ, and they go into heaven to be with the Lord forever, or they're in their sin, and they're condemned to hell forever. It is a catastrophic judgment to die apart from Christ. Flowing out from that, verse 7, we'll, we'll see the, the final point from Peter here. And we want to consider here the consummation of Christ's reign. The consummation of Christ's reign. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. So you think about kind of the, the sum total of these verses. 
And Peter is pointing us to sober living in the face of an evil, mocking, scornful world. It's pointing us to be sober because Christ is coming again. We live in light of the return of the Savior. He's encouraging us to stand firm and to remain. He's telling us not to give up, not to give in, not to waver, not to consider following after the course of the world, but to be stirred up by the reminders of the truth. He tells us the eternal reign of Christ is coming. When Christ comes, he says there's this judgment. The earth will be consumed by fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. That is who the judgment is reserved for, those who are evil and ungodly and who remain in their sin and who reject the call of the Savior. This should drive us to a, a sense of pity for these people. Again, we, we, we celebrate it and we glory in God's wrath because that's part of his nature and he is glorified in that. But when you think about this judgment coming, it should drive you to pity and it should drive you to proclamation. When you think that there comes a day when there is no turning back, there comes a day when every soul stands before the judgment seat. Those who die apart from Christ go to hell forever. They go to hell to be burned, to suffer torment forever. God is just in that. But we ought to proclaim Christ and try to save as many souls through the work of, through proclaiming Christ and the work of the Spirit. We should seek for as many souls as possible to be saved. But in thinking about that also, we want to take heart as we consider our deliverance. Really, this, this is kind of where I want to point for the, the climax of this passage is thinking about our deliverance. It's not a deliverance that we earned. It's not a victory that we won, but it's the free grace of God given to us in and through Christ, through whom we are made to be overcomers. We're those, as, as Peter talks about the the destruction of the current heavens and earth and the coming of the new heavens and earth, we are those who will enjoy the new heaven and the new earth with Christ. Think about Revelation 21. Revelation chapter 21. Read a few verses there. Beginning at verse 1, John there says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. Friends, when you think about the judgment of Christ, also think about this return of Christ when you stand before him as a bride made ready for her husband, when he will wipe away every tear. 
when all the mourning, all the crying, all the death, all the pain, it's all over. Because you see your Savior face to face and you are with Him for all eternity. Revelation 21 shows the separation of these last days. Verse 8, talking about those in their sin, it says, Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Who does this belong to? It's for those who are cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part is in the lake that burns with fire. Really, if we slow down on that description, it's those who break the law of God. That is the great separation. You have the lawbreakers and those who are in Christ, the great law keeper, the great law fulfiller. Verse 7 says that he who overcomes will inherit these things, speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. The Lord says, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Are you an overcomer? Not can you overcome, because the answer to that is absolutely no. But are you an overcomer? Are you made new in Christ? Are you counted with Christ who conquered the power of death and sin at the cross and when he was raised from the grave? Are you an overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony? Are you among those who have been crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin? Are you an overcomer? Are you in Christ? In these last days, Peter says, mockers will come. Their mocking will be against all the truth of God and his word. Their attack will be against those who stand and hold firmly to the truth. What will be your response? Are you stirred up to remember this instruction of the Lord and this promise of the return of Christ? Will you stand firm or will you be a coward? Will you cave to the evils of our day? Will you be courageous? Or will you be a coward? Will you be an overcomer? Or will you fall under the wrath of God? Those who reject the gospel have but one end. And it's eternal condemnation. That's it. That's where they go. Those who are in Christ, yours is the kingdom of God. You're counted righteous. You're declared righteous. And if you hope in this return of Christ, what does 1 John 3 say? Say? If you hope in this purity of Christ, you yourself will seek to be pure. You yourself will seek to put off sin and put on Christ. You are an overcomer. Will you live in such a way to glorify Christ in this victory that he has earned and that he has given you? Or will you rob him of his glory because you love your sin? Friends, choose today who you will serve. 
Will you serve sin and self? Or will you serve the crucified Christ? Encourage and exhort you, be like Joshua. Be like Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. May His be the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. May He receive honor and glory in His church. Let's pray. Father, we thank You.